Welcome to what the if 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 do the what the if shuffle. I don't know if I ever noticed that. You know, we play this track a million times. I like it very much. Uh, with that little drum, really a little drum, like a like a train in there. That's cool. Um, Gabby, how are you? I am good. A little bit sore. I, I made myself work out. Ooh. Well, trying to be a real person again and not just a pile of mush. <laughs> That's good. So if you begin as a pile of mush when you get to the gym, how does a pile of mush return into human Uh, shape well you kind of just sort of slink out of the gym (laughs) like like you ever seen a slime mold like a time lapse of a slime mold i don't know if i have but i should yeah okay well if any of our listeners have seen a time lapse of a slime mold move that's very much how you leave the gym (laughs) uh when you're absolute mush that is awesome Did did you do something like crazy like where you did you do a climbing wall yeah i rocked it yeah so that's that is actually my particular uh, workout of sport. It's fun. You kind of you have to solve a puzzle basically to get yourself up. That a is wall. amazing. Have you seen the movie Free Solo, the documentary? I have not. I've seen a little bit about that guy, and it gives me anxiety. Like I, I am tired, and also get like really squicked out on like ten foot walls. Like I'll be like, I, I can make the last two handholds, but uh, I look down, uh, so I'm going to come down this wall now. Uh, and so the fact that he's a uh, much, much, much higher up than that uh, terrifies me. It is. It, uh, so I uh, actually, um, my mentor Bob Eisenhart, uh, ACE, uh, his AC, Ace after his name because he's an editor, uh, edited that movie, Free Solo, and uh, I got to see the premiere um, that they had like a, a premiere in IMAX here in New York a year or two ago when that came out. Um, <clears throat> Free Solo, which went on, it's uh, by National Geographic. Hmm? Excuse me, documentary about Alex. I'm drawing a last name on uh, blank on his last name. I want to say Freehold. Uh, that can't be right, but that would be a great name for a novel version of him. Anyway, he uh, he does rock climbing with no ropes, nothing, um, just hand holding and feet holding his way all the way up. Um, and uh, the movie's about him attempting to uh, climb. Uh, was it El Capitan in um, the huge rock, sheer rock face in uh, Yellowstone, not Yellowstone, Yosemite. And uh, anyway, saw it in IMAX. So it's just, it's a terrifying movie as as it would be anyway. Um, but in IMAX, it's insane. I mean, it's just you know these filming. The uh, Jimmy Chin is the director, and he's a very famous um, mountain climber and now filmmaker, extraordinary filmmaker. So you know the head cameras perched on the on these, literally just hanging off the ledge. Of these guys, a camera and a cameraman, Jimmy being one of them, uh, filming him, uh, filming Alex do all this work. Anyway, I was very fortunate to find myself sitting next to Jimmy, the director, world famous rock climber and filmmaker. And when it was over, I turned to him and I, because I, I found the movie obviously terrifying, but also exhilarating. This incredible movie won the Oscar. And uh, I said to Jimmy, I was like, oh, I was like, for you, like, you know, seeing it in IMAX, even is it is it that scary watching it on video? It's like I maybe you know. I figured he's just used to all of it, and he was shaken. He was shaken by his own. He was like, actually, and then he just sort of waved his hand in front of his face, like like a fan. You know, he's like, yeah, it's pretty scary. <laughs> oh, I I mean, I get it. I mean, I I boulder, so it's essentially yeah. free soloing, but only like ten oh, fifteen wow. feet. It's terrifying. Yeah. And it's terrifying. I regularly get up to the top of walls and then my legs turn to jelly. I cannot imagine doing that for an entire mountain, even remotely. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, ooh, I'll have to do an if based on that. So something along those lines. That'll be fun. Uh, a heads up. Uh, um, we have, uh, you know, we always have exciting guests coming up. Um, and uh, one that's coming up, I think, in a couple of weeks. Um, this person, I won't give it away. Uh, one of our favorite guests has been on in the past, but it's been a long time. Uh, will be joining us just after having uh, taken uh, his uh, journey on the Vomit Comet, uh, aka the uh, airplane that NASA uses to train people in zero gravity. And 
he will be reporting to us about that experience. Um, that should be very fun. So all of that to say, all this movie talk this morning, uh, have you seen Dune, Gabby? Absolutely. The it's the first movie I've watched in theaters in basically since the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> like two years. The end of this world. Uh, yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned that because I, yeah, I went to see it the other week, uh, about a week ago in IMAX. Um, and uh, uh, it, that was the first movie I've seen in like in a movie theater in more than a year and a half. And to go from zero to IMAX, uh, we're talking a lot. Oh, it's insane. By the time the trailers were over, I turned to my friend and I was like, I'm exhausted. She's <laughs> like, how do you read? <laughs> just, just read, just interpreting, just taking in these images. is it, it was fascinating, actually, especially being a film person to have you. Like, we've all done like a, almost like a sensory deprivation thing. You know, uh, tank. I, th mm -hmm. I think I, I got the most immersive experience of dune um i've probably never mentioned this before but i am a popcorn fiend um like a heavy factor in why i decided to physically go to the movies is that i have had a hankering for movie theater yeah. popcorn and once during the pandemic i went into a movie theater and just bought popcorn and left really um i didn't see a movie i just bought popcorn yeah so this should tell you a little bit about my state of mind um so in a, a rapture of enjoyment i got a like the bucket uh and didn't get a drink um, and I finished the bucket, uh, right at about the point at which they are lost in the desert. And I, let me just say, I was so immersed because I was so dry. I was craving water. I was sitting there like for the entire last half of the movie. So I got it. Like I, I did, I very much was immersed in, uh, the desert world and was like, yeah, I get it. I really would kill some water. That too. is brilliant. You know, Coca-Cola needs to start using that as a, uh, an ad. Uh, Dune sponsored by Coca-Cola. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this new, uh, depending on when you're hearing the show, who, you know, I don't know whether, whether Dune has, the film has come to your area of the planet, uh, of this planet, uh, or if movie theaters are even open. I hope they are where you are. Here they are open. Um, you have to show vaccine card, you have to show you have a card proof showing you've been vaccinated and et cetera. But um, they're open. And uh, Dune, a new film by, and I learned how to pronounce his name. He he did a video on YouTube, the director, um, where he said his name at the beginning. And he, I had always thought of it as Denis Villeneuve or something like that. And as most people actually pronounce it mm -hmm. with this sort of three-syllable last name. The way he said it, unless he was just tired or what, he doesn't care. He just said <laughs> Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. So it sort of drops the middle, the, the eh. Anyway, I believe Canadian, French Canadian from Montreal. Uh, he did, he directed Blade Runner 2049, also amazing. So um, he's making his way through, uh, doing another pass through a classic science fiction. And uh, it's fantastic. He's one of the best to come along in a very long time. Um, so Dune, this is not a spoiler. And I think we will not really have spoilers. So, so you can... Rest assured in that for anything we talk about, it's something you're going to see probably in the trailer anyway, you may have even heard of. But it's a planet, it's a desert planet. And so, um, in celebration of Dune, in honor of Denis Villeneuve, <laughs> we ask, what the if... You found yourself being a member of a royal family sent, because your parents made you, to a desert planet. And you can't go home again. This is it. Get used to it. There may be bad people, but nature is the real enemy here. Or is it? Kind of a fun theme, yeah, that's a bit of a part of, actually, a pretty big part yeah. of Dune. Yeah. It's funny. It is both a tragedy and a story about ecology and, yeah. like, natural resources, which is not necessarily what I expected going into reading the book. I, I watched the movie, then read the book. Right. Oh, oh, uh, interesting. So opposite most people. But. Oh, that's very interesting, actually. 
Dune was on my list for yeah. years to read, and I never got around to it for some reason. And it took me watching the movie and enjoying it to be like, all right, I'll, I'll order some books and pick up. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an amazing book. And we can talk about a little bit about the book, maybe a little in a bit. Um, we've just landed on the planet. And uh, we step out of our uh, ship. And what do you see, Gabby? So you are, we know this much, you, uh, you are an ecologist. I believe you said you wanted to be. What if an ecologist yes. visited Dune? And so you step out of the uh, ship. It, classic science fiction trope. A ramp comes down. They've yet to... Yep. Fa- Very dramatically. This is just, again, this movie is absolutely amazing. I'm not right, ripping on this movie. Whatever, but it's fun scientific science trope. These ships can fly in, in every, just about every science fiction movie or science fantasy movie, should we say, uh, can fly, you know, through time and space and, blah, 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 and they can make it all the way to a planet. They could basically don't seem to have any gravity issues whatsoever. They make them and they land, but they have to land six feet off the ground. They just can't quite touch the ground. Every month, right? You know, they could land on the ground and open the door you want... and you, know, you could walk out. I just don't think you want the whole ship resting on the okay. dirt. Like, I mean, that's the thing with planes, even. You don't just like, you don't, you have to have landing gear. You do not just grind the True. plane against the dock. So may, maybe spaceships could move past that. But in our, our 21st century heads, we're like landing right. gear. I guess what I mean, maybe a little bit. Now, a ramp is, it's, it's accessible. For, for people with, you know, this differently abled people, disabled people, uh, at least it's a ramp. But you figure that even, at least it'd be like a little elevator that take you down and open up. A little elevator would right. be dope. Right. Yeah. Like even with planes, generally you go to the airport and there's a, a thing that comes up. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the door opens and you, um, first, I suppose the first thing that happens is you smell the, the air, you breathe the air. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, so on Dune, it is going to be really, really super dusty. Um, one of the things you kind of notice, especially in the, the new movie, is uh, you can never really see blue sky. Oh, which essentially point. means the air is never clear. There's always some dust in the air that's reflecting some of the light. Um, so the sky is going to be slightly more of, I guess, like a whitish color. Everything's going to be very blinding, to be honest. Uh, I don't know anything about the way this ship's work but if they're turning up any kind of extra dust that's going to be a little sucky yeah, um yeah. and I, I suppose we're landing in a settlement so i wouldn't smell cinnamon um because the the desert there are pockets of spice and spice is being described generally as smelling and tasting of cinnamon um and so i guess if that particular type of sand was blasting around i might smell that as well that's interesting is it, is it say it's, it's like a cinnamony cinnamony spice yeah, I think they said it kind of varies a little right. bit depending on what spices. They, they refer to it as slightly different categories, I think, almost. Right. Um, or I couldn't quite tell if that was just a different name in general for right. spice. Um, but a couple of times they do mention it as being like cinnamon. That's interesting. Uh-huh. And by, by the way, this, this, I'm now just like, this is like many, many great science fiction classics. This one is full of what the ifs. And I'm making a note for another one to do maybe when Matt comes. Oh, and Matt is not here today, by the way. He, he was... Uh, he had to stay behind on uh, Caladan, uh, just in case. <laughs> yeah, we left him with the yeah. water. He didn't pass his uh, vaccination. Uh, uh, he's gone. Yeah, he's, he's gone. He <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh. Um, so uh, he, one had to stay behind, and so and so matters there. But he'll be with us next week. We can guarantee that he's working on it. And uh, uh, but again, it tells you right right at the beginning. The big deal here is that spice. There's a spice on this planet that is mined, and again, for a future if this is one of the things I find most fascinating, uh, that the spice is essentially essential to the entire commerce of this galaxy, um, because there are certain creatures who, when they imbibe the spice, it has like a psychedelic effect on people and there are these creatures who when they imbibe the spice it allows them to navigate to, to see roots through time and space you know so you can basically those are just people space. they're just oh they're just people but they get turned into some kind of creepy. every 
Nope, that is only the only that is only the older version of the Dune movie. But that is not in any way whatsoever supported by any the, or at least anything in the first book. I haven't read the rest of right. the series. Right. So the race that but, the race that does I forget what they're called, but the, the ones who do this are. So the the guild navigators are so the whole thing about Dune is essentially that um they have no AI because they sort of had their before the events of this had their sort of human AI war. Um and right. so instead that they've really through eugenics, etc. Um, molded people instead. Um, so you have Mentats who are human computers. You have the Gill navigators who, with the aid of Spice, are able to navigate the ships through time, space, right. whatever. Um, more more space, I think. Although they can, the a weird side effect of Spice is that you sometimes see through time. Right. Um, and so, as a result of humanity being funneled in a certain way, people have some abilities usually unlocked by Spice right. um, as a result of their higher mental capabilities. Um, yeah. So the the weird fetus guild navigator <laughs> things were I think only a property of the the older Dune movie. Although I do have plans to get really drunk and watch it at some point. The the David um, Lynch Dune. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um my friend Jay who I went to see uh this this current Dune with, he actually uh we he went home and uh he said the last thing he said to me as he was getting gone to the subway and he said he said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go watch the David Lynch version again. We hadn't seen it. And I was like, really? Okay. And then I got a text real, super late in the middle of the night. It's just from Jay. And it just said, uh, watched Lynch's Dune, period. Not as good, period. Um, but it is actually, it's a, it's a fascinating, it, there's actually a lot of interesting stuff. I hate to trash it that much. So, um, so, you, so you're breathing it in. So there's a little hint of this spice in the air, a little bit of cinnamon. Um, but here's something I always find. Whenever I've traveled places, I don't, I don't know if it's just me or I feel like the very first thing I notice as soon as you step out of the plane or out of the airport, wherever the first place is, you're going to kind of contact with the actual outside air of this place where you've landed is the humidity. Um, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, it just hits you. And usually we think of that as like, well, for instance, if you've been, if you suddenly go to, if you were not in a place that was super humid and you traveled there, let's say. New Orleans for some reason, you know, or something like that. In the summer, you say, bam, you're hit by this humidity. But you can, what, what would this feel like? It's so dry. Um, in fact, it's so dry that basically you have to, you really need to wear some kind of protective clothing if you're going to be out there for any degree of time. What would, what does that feel like? Why this dryness and how does your, how, what is happening inside your, a body in response to this uh, dryness you're suddenly Well, uh, it's a good bit like kind of reaching into your oven, uh-huh. especially if it's like on a lower temperature. Assumably the surface of Dune is not 450 degrees uh-huh. um, because that would just absolutely nuke all life. Um, so assumably it's essentially like reaching your hand into an oven. Uh, and honestly, we've me just stepping off the, the dock, there's nothing really that's going to happen to me in that moment other than I'm going to start sweating, uh, essentially dehydrating. Uh, and I'm also going to be like, oh my God, it's dry. Um, and I think like most people, when they get on Dune, their first thing is, all right, well, we landed in the middle of the day. We got to get out of the sun. Yeah. Because most work and life is not happening during the heat of the day. It's happening uh, either at night, early morning, or early evening. Right, right, right. When the sun is not at right. its peak. So we, uh, um, the, the, uh, the leader, the king or prince, whoever, who, who is the leader of our family, uh, you know, gives a quick, hey, how are you, to the people waiting outside, some happy to see us, most not. And uh, we go inside and and uh, take a nap. And then begins your day as, you, you know, the next day comes, your rest is your first working day on uh, Ar- Arrakis, uh, the dune Desert planet. Uh, what do what, I would assume, I would assume. Actually, this is kind of fun. I mean, I feel, I feel like we you we brought you in particular. Or you've studied to do this in particular because we don't really know a lot about this planet and the uh, the the uh, royal family that was here before. We're not on good terms with, and so they didn't really. They're not going to help us out share a lot of information that they may have learned with us. So how, how do you begin to, how do you begin to study an entire planet? Yeah. So that is a beefy undertaking. 
uh, to some extent, especially since it seems like they, they don't really observe all of Arrakis. Um, <laughs> they seem to have some pockets they observe more than others. Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of have to sort of just take what you can get. Um, so obviously, if you're an ecologist, the biggest, sexiest thing to study is sandworms. Um, they, in ecology, there are people who talk about big, sexy megafauna. Um, so it's essentially your really charismatic animals, like your pandas and stuff like that. Um, that you can get people interested in very easily. The, so the visit doom, there's worms, uh, would definitely be, um, sort of an ecologist thing, but you know, you do want to kind of get down to the granular bits of, all right, what's supporting, um, this, this, this food chain, uh, what is there, um, so really fundamentally, the life that you're witnessing on Dune is very, very well adapted to the desert. And it's kind of cool because we have some pretty insane deserts on Earth, too, that I think most people don't realize. You know, you think the Sahara Desert, but the uh, driest desert is actually the Atacama in Chile. And they get, on average, less than half an inch of rain every year. Of course, climate change brought them two storms that caused a mass extinction of some microbial really? life, which is a big suck. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So actually, this is the thing. Uh, just adding water uh, to places is not good. Uh, the environment is not like one of those little grow dinosaur capsules. Uh, if you add water to a thing, sometimes it just kills life. Uh, and so a lot of the life in particularly dry places is adapted to conserve water. And if you add water, um, it really just they pull too much water in and especially in microbes, they, they just burst. Um, so kind of being able to have open access to water for some of these creatures would probably not be great. Uh, think about overwatering a cactus. Right, right. Or even it's if kind of I remember as a kid, one of the first times I was, somebody made the mistake of you know, my mom or my grandmother, or somebody made the mistake of sending me out to water the plants. Um, they were all, you know, potted plants that were out on the backyard or whatever. And uh, they had not been watered in quite a while. And so I went in and I just figured, well, I just dumped the entire, you know, just a huge amount of water. Oh, it's very dry. So I pour, pour, pour a huge amount of water on it and kept doing that, made my way down all the way around, let's say the the edge of the yard where these plants were. By the time I came back to where I'd started, there was like a flood on the ground because the water had just gone right through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, here's, here's a fun thing. For instance, you've read the book and then there are um, uh, Frank Herbert himself and then his, I believe his son, Brian Herbert, continued mm -hmm. the series. From, it just goes on and on and on. And so there's a lot of information there. But we don't know about these books. No one's written the books yet. You're on the planet and like, you know, there's worms. So just tell us a little bit about that. Cause that is one of the most obviously amazing, fascinating, scary, awe inspiring things about this planet, but you don't know anything about them. How would you even begin to uh, learn about them and about the, like, for instance, I'm guessing if you want, want, there's interesting creatures on earth, you go, you want to learn about them, but you know nothing about their environment either. You kind of have to learn about it all together. Is that right? So how do you, um, what, suppose you could plan yeah, an mean, uh, expedition to go learn something. What would you do? Yeah. So one of the things is that, is that, you know, on Dune, there is a native population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Fremen are very well adapted to living out in the desert, and they know way more about these creatures than me as some outside ecologist I'm going to know. Um, so talking to the local people who know the ecology essentially of this place intimately uh, is important uh, because we don't think a lot about, especially in like Western culture, about how much indigenous groups rely on the environment and also are very well attuned to it, um, especially like in the United States, one common misconception is that, you know, we had all of these acres of old growth forest that it was just endless wilderness as far as the eye could see. But actually, when we went and later studied these and also talked to indigenous people, their role in cultivating those ecosystems and making like food forests was very important to the health of the forests. And yeah. actually, forests with human intervention often do better than those without it. Um, and so talking to a group like the Fremen, whose life and in part sort of religious beliefs, uh, circle around sandworms uh, would be very important to understanding, all right, this is clearly an arch predator of the desert, an apex predator, predator and kind of landscape shaper as well. Um, 
because when you have something that big moving through an environment, it also alters it in ways that are important. Um, so that would be a big first step of like, all right, well, here's the biggest thing in the environment that they're definitely going to want me to study. Um, being dispatched here as a, an ecologist. So, all right, what do you know about this thing? Yeah. And uh, I think, how does it work when you when you plan, uh, you're going to study something? Like, I, I am always fascinated about that. Like, even, where do you begin um, is, is part of it. But also, what's the most important, like, what's the order of things or priority of kinds of things you need to learn to begin to understand it? Or does it, does it not matter? You just sort of like, well, we'll just start collecting. Well, stuff. I'm not an ecologist, yeah. so I don't know what happens if, you know, they specifically stumble across a species out of right. nowhere. Um, but my thought based on stuff I've just read generally is you'd probably want to start making general observations. Yeah. Sandworms are attracted by rhythm, yeah. things like that. They eat just about everything. Um, they don't seem to need water. And I think actually water kills them, if I remember correctly. Um, from the book. Uh, so these are just random factoids, but through additional observation and kind of in figuring out what they might inter be interacting with, then you can sort of flesh out more of a web. Um, so there's something I heard from conservationists, that essentially, if you are trying to figure out how to save X wild creature, you aren't trying to figure out physically how to save that creature. You're not shooting its predators unless there's an overabundance of those predators. You're trying to count how many food sources it has. How wide is its territory range? How often does it interact with people? Um, so there's, you're not just studying the thing itself. You have to figure out what it's interacting with. Right, 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 right. And so what, did, what are you most curious about? What do you want to know about the, the sandworms? What the hell they eat? Yes. So one of the things that I, I think I mentioned this before we started, the um, the ecology of sandworms is a little unsustainable. Um, so the sandworms are formed by this weird cyclical cycle, which is mentioned in the book. Uh, it's like sand plankton to little maker to big maker is how the sandworm cycle goes. Um, and essentially, it seems like big sandworms will eat small sandworms and small sandworms eat sand plankton, I guess, I think was the term. Um, so it's it's very strange that you have this big creature that's technically a filter feeder, but also um, will eat plenty of things that are not filtered, i.e. Um, right. it, machines uh, and people. Uh, looking at... Just anything that's exactly. out there. Exactly. So um, Collider, Collider.com has an interesting article about this, what, what do sandworms eat? And it says, uh, they say, ordinary... Oh, I'm sorry, the author here, let me quote him. Spencer Whitworth. Spencer Whitworth says Collider.com. That's a wonderful name. Says, uh, ordinarily, sandworms on Arrakis spend most of their time gobbling up sand that comprises the nearly endless dunes covering the planet. In doing so, they are able to feast on creatures known as sand plankton, microscopic creatures that devour leftover traces of the spice scattered across the Arrakine uh, sands. Worms are also known to consume dry components of the planet's crust. Ooh, yeah. See, they eat their crust. Unlike little kids, the worms learn to eat their crust. Uh, creating a diet of mostly sedimentary and inorganic material. However, that doesn't mean sandworms don't occasionally get a nice treat. And that is <laughs> not a spoiler alert. That is humans who uh, come and try to, you know, take their spice off the planet. So, um, are, are, are you aware of, are there things on earth that grind their way through lots of actually inedible materials? Um, or, you know, something like, cause the interesting thing, I think when, when they say eat sand, they don't, it doesn't actually eat the sand, right? It just, it's almost, my guess is that they, their body then expels all the stuff that wasn't, you know, digestible. Um, so that they can get the plankton and stuff in between inside the sand. Yeah. I mean, my first thought is parrotfish Ooh. if they're eating like inorganic material. Cause, so parrotfish eat algae, but they have the big beaks because occasionally they wind up eating them off of coral. So they crunch coral sometimes. Um, and actually, uh, they make sand that way because it gets spat out the other side. Uh, boop it out. Um, but... That's, I guess, kind of the closest thing I could think of. And I mean, of course, there's there's baleen whales and stuff like that, which eat um, 
krill zooplankton phytoplankton also i think i don't yeah. know where's vanessa when you need her um to, for whale facts um but yeah i mean there there are like extremely large creatures on our planet that eat very small things so there, uh, there is yeah. precedent for that yeah 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 um and so what you know again what do you as the uh, as gabby as ecologist as you yourself put into put on this mission um what would you like to be able to at what point would you feel like you're starting to get a handle on how this place works well i think definitely once i move past just sandworms uh-huh. i yeah. mean they they seem like they are the coolest biggest yeah. thing and obviously you could spend very much like any sort of field of biology you could spend your entire life just studying one animal and never get close to solving oh, it wow. uh, but yeah. i feel like my my job here is um breadth not depth uh so i have to cover a little bit more um and so for stuff like that i'd be interested in studying all right well there are rockier regions in which there might be periods of shade uh what grows here because uh, there are different kind of scrub uh like plants and stuff like that that they mentioned that are adapted uh to living in the desert uh so adaptations like that and on earth at least include like really waxy like tough skin for plants really wide um root systems although maybe not on dune because it never rains so they might have to go deep for water as opposed to wide um among animal life that you might find sort of towards the plants um you're gonna see things that keep them from maintaining long con like intense contact with the sand uh so you're gonna see like jumping mice uh and actually if you see the movie there's one madib uh kind of looks like a jerboa basically but with bigger ears and that is another desert mouse that exists that hops uh to keep mostly off the sand right it's like a little um, it's it a tiny like these... tiny mouse has a tiny tiny body just like mice do but it has huge ears relative to its little body right and then the... yeah and huge ears are a desert adaptation because it helps you vent heat uh so essentially yeah. there's blood vessels in there and so putting so many blood vessels in there and exposed to the air it enables heat exchange so the the hot air essentially from the blood flows out and then cooler air from the environment is in contact with it of course you could it could just be you know completely insufferable outside at which point the mice are probably going to be underground um because no amount of heat exchange is going to help at that point it's just going to be insufferably hotter outside yeah um and uh ultimately the humans or the people that live there um the the ecologist, the biologist who's there would know this automatically, but I imagine other people learning about it. It's almost like myself, actually. I was like, oh, wait a second. I was thinking, like, you mentioned the, the, the natives who live there uh, and then the environment. But it's like the natives are part of that environment very much. Yeah. So, so you would begin to see how they interact, um, which is quite uh, fascinating. Um, it... In the movie, the ecologist—they don't go into you don't you don't get that much about this particular character. There's a lot more in the book. Maybe in book two there'll be more. I'm not sure. But um, what I love is that, is that you were mentioning that you know there was the people there. There's it's, it's the ecologist in this story is the perfect sort of uh, mediator between the the invasive species of humans and the natives who live there because, because he or she, depending on which uh, version of the story you're reading um, has to, you know, find out how do, and, and the, the people that live there are not just a source of information, but they, they're actually part of the environment uh, itself. So uh, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you need to you you need to give a report so you've been out there in the desert for a long time and spending lots of the king's money that's fine but and we've learned a tremendous amount but now you need to i think the sort like science eventually they say okay you need to publish publish your parish <laughs> yes. publish your parish right. if you one. think the desert is dangerous just wait till you see the desert when the funding is cut off um so <laughs> you have to come back and uh, 
by this point, you know, the, 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 you, you've been out there long enough that many, maybe even a generation of children have grown up, you know, in the city and um, they've all studied and they are now the, your fellow scientists, essentially. Um, and also the people, you know, just the general people in the city, they want to hear what, you know, what you found out. So you're going to present a big um, presentation. What, what do you think you, you would... Um, how do you pull it all together or what, what is it? What is it that drives you? Or am I, you know, I could be wrong. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be a scientist, but I might be sort of getting this all wrong. Like what, what how are you going to convey your findings to the people and to the Academy? Well, yeah. I mean, so assumably there is some semblance of similar academic process between the, I can't remember what the, empire is it is a lance is the houses i can't remember what the overall empire is called um essentially between their empire and us similar academic right, process right, right. i'm just assuming yeah. um but frequently there are conferences for this type of thing um so if i'm the first ecologist i probably am then going to a general conference but if there's more of us eventually there might be an arrakis specific conference of ecologists right. uh, sharing all of their respective information. Uh, because the more scientists interested in the thing, generally speaking, the faster the research goes. Um, I'd expect, especially if I'm the first one there, I am going to be tasked almost exclusively with figuring out spice. Uh, because unfortunately, our interest in the natural world often comes from how we can best exploit it. Um, and so understanding where the spice comes from, how to sustainably harvest it, and also how to make sure there's more of it is going to definitely be something the Emperor and the uh, Spacing Guild is interested in. Uh, so likely my first report will not be to academics. It's going to be to uh, the government uh, or to the Harkonnen slash Atreides family about, you know, how this is how it works. This is where you should look for spice, stuff like this. Um, and then later I'll sneak a report to my ecology friends off and be like, this, this is really cool. Um, because, you know, there's always a juxtaposition between science for marketability and science for science's sake, that's, even in our world. That's right. And so what is that? What are, what is that? It's really cool. What, what is something that you, by watching the movie or when you were reading the book that has a, you know, a biologist, essentially, you were like, oh, that's really cool. I definitely am always interested in um, unique byproducts that animals produce in general. Um, so the concept of a psychedelic from... A creature is not entirely new. You've huh? probably heard of people licking toads. Um, there's also plenty of actual real world drugs that we get from studying animals. Um, so there was one, and I can't remember what it does now that we got from cone snails. Um, I don't know. It's like a for the for the snail, it's like a paralytic venom, but it turns out that one of the compounds in that is actually good for. And of course, I can't remember it. What exactly it does? Uh, cone snails. Where are cone snails found? Uh, this one, I think they got some. Oh, uh, so. Oh, it was cone snail insulin, which apparently acts faster than human insulin. Uh, so that was one of the, the uses that they did. Um, there was they also use them occasionally uh, as pharmacological tools to study pain signaling um, oh. because they could potentially become a new class of um, essentially pain medications. So there's there's all sorts of really cool stuff that we pull from nature. And I think mostly we think of plants mm -hmm. like aspirin right. yeah. from willow. Uh, but animals also produce really cool substances sometimes. Um, and so I do kind of like the idea of a giant worm that we're like, ah, this one gets you high. <laughs> it's a little riskier than licking toads. Um, yeah. But I think it's very it's somewhere between uh, licking toads and eating cat poop. Or drinking cat isn't there a thing where people are putting cat poop in coffee i would hope not that you are going to get toxoplasmosis <laughs> oh no you're thinking of the uh cat poop coffee civet cat yeah it's not poop in the coffee the cat eats the coffee beans the cat's internal okay. body temperature roasts the beans and it's a civet cat i think yeah. so it's not actually like you... someone's like here kitty kitty like eating all the beans this is like a, a an actual like completely different animal it's also called in part a cat yeah so i i'm i'm imagining uh uh the there's another there's another story that comes out of this universe uh the dune universe and that is the planet where uh people went in, insane and basically just 
converted the entire ecology of the planet. Which basically that, that's sort of you know Dune is very much about. It. It's like well, what happened to this place? You know, it's a big mystery. Why? Why is it so arid? No, they talk about it. Oh well, they talk about it in the book. You mean why it's so arid? Kind, Kinds mentions it in right. the book. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I just meant like as as you get there, you kind of part of the story is leading you to find it out. So what is it? What was it? It has to do with the life cycle of sandworms. Right. That essentially they impartially make the desert they sequester water right um and so that is is why the planet is a desert you could reverse it to some extent but of course then it hampers the range of the sandworms um so anything that you do has to if you really want the sandworms you have to be careful about how much water you put and make freely available on iraq right so in the uh, rick moranis spaceballs version of dune it will be an entire planet uh the entire ecology has been converted to um, it built around feeding coffee beans to cats and harvesting their their magic poops. Well, I have people joke. I have heard people joke around about like the entire plot of Dune is just two dude like two families fighting over a planet made of cocaine. Yeah, which I think <laughs> is hysterical and actually wow. quite accurate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, or even, and I think this was something that Frank Herbert, you know, Frank Herbert, the book is written, I think, in the, was it the mid to late 60s, I think? And um, I think so. It's, uh, you know, the spice is also, a, you know, it's a metaphor for many things, but one, an analogy also for many things. But oil, you know, that oil is essentially the cocaine of the human civilization. Or, you know, it's like this, you know, it's absurd, this thing that you have to, uh, you essentially do end up destroying the, ecology of your planet um so you can use this thing or because you're using this thing either way or both um so uh gabby what are you uh, as you head out you've presented your paper uh in holographic form i'm guessing uh perhaps to uh the academy and then you went to the you hung out in the bar afterwards and you talked about the stuff you really find cool and then you are now walking to get go back to your ornithopter, and you're going to fly back out and, and continue your your research. How are you? How are you feeling? What are you looking forward to? What are you? What are your hopes and fears as you fly off to your next day at work? Well, I think first and foremost, it has to be cool to be studying an entire planet, <laughs> um, especially it is all new, brand new frontier. Um, everything is new. Everything is publishable. Everything you can talk about. Um, and I cannot imagine being at the forefront of a scientific boom like that. Uh, actually, you know what? I can kind of. It's a little bit like when SARS-2 broke out. All the virologists were publishing everything. And so uh, it's sort of just like a smorgasbord of, of science. Um, and then also, you know, I fancy I would maybe be a little bit like, you know, Liet Kynes. They're like, how do you have a slightly more sustainable plant life? Because uh, not going to lie, when I was reading Dune the entire time, I had a really big thought of how the hell do these people feed themselves? Uh, yeah. um, because you sustainable agriculture is not something you can do on a planet like Dune. Um, so, yeah, trying to make life just a little bit easier uh, by maybe tweaking um, nature and our interactions with it um, by learning from the Fremen and then maybe changing things. Um, would would kind of be up there. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, it makes me think too that uh, of, I think when when Frank Herbert wrote this, I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think global warming was a story yet. Like that part, like, polluting the planet definitely yeah. was, and uh, you know, polluting the air and over overpopulation. You know, d destroying uh, the, making the planet less, making Earth less survivable is certainly a thing. Um, nonetheless. This is one of the amazing things when you revisit a story. And I've actually, I would reread Dune maybe every 10 years or so. I've gone back to it and reread it again. And of course, you you understand it better or you understand it in a different way, partly because you're older. Yes, but also science has, science and technology have moved on quite a bit. And you you see other things. Why begin people begin to say the great science fiction novels or the great science fiction authors have this almost pr prophetic uh feeling sometime and the thing that strikes you and when you see dune uh, see the movie it's like we 
everyone today seeing is like, oh yeah, automatically. I think that everyone will just assume this was about global warming, that that's part of the you know the the contemporary metaphor we're supposed to take take away from it. Um, but it also makes me think that we think about global warming in terms of in binary terms, like, oh, the planet's livable now, and if we don't act, we will destroy the planet. All of which is true. However, it will take a very long time. And a fascinating thing you see in Dune, I think, is is that this is all about life on the edge, you know, like their teeth. Like, yeah, you yeah. might be able to. And much like yeah. in Dune, they have they don't have much biodiversity. Oh, right. The ecology is basically collapsed. So things might survive the collapse of our planet, but it's not going to be a lot. Um, if rainfall can extinct multiple species of important mo- microbe in one desert, um, then, yeah. It's it's probably not good, great for the rest of everything else changing the climate globally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, are there anything anything that's now you have going? We're back to back to Earth, and uh, as you just I'm curious after you've seen the movie or perhaps in a dream, also a big part of the book, had this experience as being the ecologist of an entire planet or having to study the entire planet. What's something? What's a totally mundane thing, for instance, that might in your day-to-day life uh, make you think, oh, hey, that's like Dune, or that reminds me of Dune? Oh, well, I think exactly in the opposite sense. Free access to water <sighs> would be mind-blowing after so much time spent on a desert planet where all you have to think about is water, conserving water, making sure you recycle your water, um, just free access to it, especially like, you know, leaving the tap warning accidentally while you brush your teeth would be mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I know, I'm sure we have listeners out there and I've, I've lived in, you know, a couple places like Los Angeles or other places where extensive chronic doubt, a doubt, chronic doubt, drought, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is always out there. And, um, that is another thing we'd be heading for. Like for instance, Los Angeles, you still, I don't even know how you, you'll see signs next to every faucet, <laughs> every public bathroom or wherever. It's just, it's, and that sign is really old. It's been there probably for many, many years, but it's still appropriate. And it just says, please don't leave the water on. Conserve, you know, conserve the water. So, um, well, thank you, Gabby. This was excellent. Thank you for inspiring us to take this, take this journey. Um, have you read any of the other books? And uh, would you, or do you think you would? I have not, and I have no plans to. Yeah. I, I had a very, eh, extra, like, response to Dune. I loved the world building. I thought that was great. Yeah. I wanted to strangle Paul with my bare hands. Um, so I probably will not be reading the rest of the series. Uh, so, <laughs> um, Gabby is off to join the, uh, with the Sardukar, the, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the wicked army that's out to just, uh, they're sort of like the, the, uh, the, the green berets or something or uh, who belong to the emperor um you know hell-bent on destroying uh, enemies so watch out paul gabby's coming for you um if she approaches you with a chris knife or uh, anything like that you better turn on your shields but they probably won't help you because she's lived in the desert and she studied with the fremen this is gonna i can't wait for part well they don't have shields in the desert right because the the worms um She's got you. She's going to draw you out. So we we do we. I'll, I'll stop you now because I think we've given away a little bit of Paul. Paul knows that uh, you're waiting for him. So uh, good luck. He will um, a future if we're going to do it. I'm very. I'm looking forward to doing maybe Matt comes back and sometime. Uh, is is something on the voice? The voice. How how can a creature? Oh, I think that'd be fun. Control people with their, with just with their voice and things like that. It's very cool. Um, Fantastic. Uh, if you've seen Dune, let us know. I'd love to know what you guys think. And obviously, it's certainly one of the richest stories out there. Um, and Paul, uh, Paul Atreides, you love him, you hate him, you know. Uh, it, it, what do you think? Would you like to be? Would you like to be Paul? Would you like to be? You know, if I was anybody, honestly, and this is not that that this is not really a spoiler. The bad guy in the movie is kind of, or end in the story, uh, he just eats all the time. He's just a huge, huge guy. All he does is eat and take baths in, in what appears to be just sort of like a oil and vinegar bath. Uh, so I think I'd like to be that. I think that, that just seems fun, right? 
why, you know, why, why push it? If you can take care, if you get people to bring you food all the time, that's great. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, Abby, Gabby, anything you want to plug? Any, anything's coming up? No. Nope. Unplugged. Unplugged. Conserve your water. Uh, yeah. and Matt will be back next week. Um, I will give a shout out. It is holiday time. Matt has an amazing book called Einstein's War. Get it. It's good. By Matthew Stanley. It's fantastic. It's, yeah. Enjoyed it more than Dune. Now there's a, <laughs> there's a review <laughs> better than Dune. And you know what? It's all true. Um, Einstein's War by Matthew Stanley. And um, exciting guests coming up. Stay tuned. Uh, keep, keep in touch with us on What the If Show on Twitter at What the If Show and on the web at whattheif.com. And now, Gabby, um, our ritual, I don't know what, uh, the, the, the sandworms are coming for us. We've, we've been making, you know, too much noise. And so they're coming. Uh, and every one of these sandworms is actually represents an if. And there are many, many, many ifs that are coming. Um, what, what do we have to do? Or it, it may be futile even, but what, what does this cause us to do every week? Yeah, as the sandworms approach drawn by us foolishly leaving our shields on, uh, <laughs> as they approach and as we consider all of the insane possibilities that are also assaulting us at the same moment, we cannot help but to shout the name of the show. What? What? I just have one tip for Paul Atreides. Use your inside voice. <laughs> See you next week.